Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on October 16, 2016, on the basis of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. You are weird. Is something that we usually don't like to hear, right? In fact, it kind of stings a little bit, doesn't it? Parents, when one of your kids says to you, Mom, Dad, you are weird, might hurt a little bit. Kids, when one of your friends says to you, you are weird, might really hurt our feelings. And so at the risk of, of kind of offending and, and maybe upsetting everyone in the room today, I'm going to say it, you are all weird. Let me rephrase that a little bit. Some of you might not be weird yet, but you will be very soon. Others of you are already weird, and, and you're going to stay weird. And still others of you might be just a, a little bit weird, but pretty soon you're going to be full-blown weird. And all of that is assuming that you're going to keep coming to this church. Because I don't know if you realize it or not, but this is kind of a weird church. I mean, think about it for a minute. In our church, most of the music that you hear comes out of a computer in the back. And when we have Bible class hour on Sunday mornings, we, we put up this temporary wall in the back so that we can have two classes going on at the same time in this room because we only have so much space. And in fact, to top it all off, right now as we speak, if I hold my ear real close to this wall, I might be able to hear next door a conversation about how expensive a brand new iPhone 7 is over at U U.S. Cellular. All of that is a little bit weird, right? And yet, none of that is what makes our church weird. No, what makes us weird, what gives us our identity, our unique, one-of-a-kind fingerprint, so to speak, is the very same thing that made the people of Corinth think Paul was so weird. I realize that the city of Corinth was a true melting pot of a city. It was one of those cities that you always had to pass through, no matter where you were going to and no matter where you were coming from. It was one of those cities where no one actually was born and grew up there, but everyone, else, everyone had settled there from somewhere else. It was a city that, that included every belief about God under the sun. And yet even in a city that was defined by its diversity and open to every ideology imaginable. If you had been in Corinth walking to church on a Sunday morning and a friend of yours bumped into you, they might just say, wow, you are weird. You go to that weird church in town, don't you? You go to the, the church that was started by that weird guy named Paul. In fact, the opponents and the outsiders in Corinth didn't just say that Paul was weird. They said he was crazy, that he was out of his mind, that he was insane, that the lights were on, but nobody was home. That's what they were saying about Paul. How do you think Paul responded? Well, he didn't deny it. He didn't try and defend himself. Instead, he just owned it. He embraced it. And in the verses that are in front of us today, that's exactly what Paul is doing and, and really encouraging us to do the same, to embrace weird. And he does that in two important ways. He first of all 
reminds us where our weirdness comes from, and then second of all, reminds us what that weirdness looks like. So why did Paul act the way that he did? Where did his weirdness come from? He says this, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now you are probably aware that there are a lot of weird religions out there in the world, a lot of weird ideas about God spooking around. In fact, this week I came across a religion that believes that there is a human being walking planet Earth who is actually the son of Satan. And what really makes it weird is that they believe that that son was born back in the 60s and was delivered by Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. That that son was then raised by former U.S. President Richard Nixon and that that son is actually still alive. But don't worry, he's all the way over in Belgium, apparently, which means I think we're safe over here. There are a lot of weird ideas about God and about religion out there in the world, and yet there is no idea that is quite so weird as the one that Paul so beautifully summarizes in these verses. The idea that one died for all, and therefore all died. Here's really what Paul is saying with that sentence. He's, he's saying, picture your relationship with God as if you were sitting across the table from a vicious debt collector. God is the debt collector and you are the one who is in his debt. In fact, every time that you sin, it's like you are swiping the credit card and racking up that debt higher and higher and higher. Every time you sin, that's what you do. And the only payment that can possibly be made for sin is death. Now, so far so good. Nothing at all weird about that. In fact, the idea that there is some sort of higher power up there that we are accountable to, that we have somehow messed up our relationship with, and that we somehow need to figure out how to get right with, that's not a weird idea at all. In fact, every religion under the sun is based on those simple premises. Nothing weird about that. In fact, it would furthermore be very natural and very normal for us to assume that as God looks at us in our helpless situation with this mountain of debt, that a loving God would have some sort of mercy on us, that he would be lenient toward us, that he would maybe expect us to pay him back, say, only 50 cents on the dollar. That if we just straighten out our lives a little bit and, and kind of try a little bit harder, then we can get out of this mess together. Nothing weird about that. And it would furthermore be normal and natural to assume that at some point God might send us a little bit of help. That all of a sudden someone would show up, some savior, who maybe even helps us pay some of the debt, who maybe teaches us and shows us a better way to live, better than just continually swiping that sin card over and over and over again. Someone who helps us get back on our feet. Nothing weird about that either. But none of that is what Paul is saying in these verses. Instead, he's saying that, that in order to deal with our debt, what God does is he actually takes our debt in its entirety and he transfers it to Jesus. Jesus becomes on the hook for our death, which means that Jesus must make the payment for our debt. And it's not simply that Jesus pays our debt for us, because you know what happens when someone 
pays your debt for you, right? When someone buys up your debt, who do you now owe? You owe that person. In fact, that's, there's an idea about Jesus that goes just like that, that is often found even among Christians and among Christian churches, that, that Jesus has essentially bought our debt from God, and, well, the good news is we don't owe God anymore, but now we owe Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying either. No, Paul says that Jesus pays for our debt, not just for us, not just for our benefit, but in our place as our substitute. He pays our debt as if we were the ones paying it ourselves. And not just part of it, not just most of it, not just enough to get us back on our feet, but the whole thing. And that's why Paul says that after Jesus was done, after Jesus had died, it was as if everyone on the face of the earth had died. The payment had been made. We don't owe God. We don't owe Jesus. No debt remains. What Paul is explaining in these verses is this very simple and yet very profound idea that we have a God who gives. That as God looks at us in our helpless situation with this mountain of debt called sin, we have a God who gives. Not a God who renegotiates. Not a God who cuts a deal with us. Not a God who, who broker, brokers or bargains or lends us some money. But a God who gives. A God of grace. A God who treats us unfairly. A God who gives Jesus what he doesn't deserve so that God can give us what we don't deserve. A God who takes our debt and transfers it to Jesus so that he can take Jesus' perfect credit score and in turn transfer it to us. That's what made Paul so weird. That's what makes us weird as a church. Out of, out of all the ideas about God that are out there in the world, that one is truly unique. That one is truly one of a kind, and that is a huge part of our identity as a church. We believe in and we proclaim a God who gives, a God of grace. But couldn't you believe all that and still be a normal person? Couldn't you believe all that stuff about Jesus and still not be weird? Paul says, I'm sorry, but the answer is no. After reminding us where our weirdness comes from, he then goes on to explain what that weirdness looks like in a person's life. And he starts by saying this. He says, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, there's a normal way to live, and that is to live for yourself. For every decision you make, for every course of action that you take, to be with your own self-interest as your number one priority. But if you realize that your insurmountable debt was paid by Jesus as if it had been paid by you, it is impossible to stay normal. Instead, you have a completely new priority and a completely new goal at the top of your list, and that is to bring glory and honor and praise to the one who paid 
your debt for you. And living that way, well, it's weird. Next, Paul says this. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Not only is there a normal way to live, there's a normal way to look at other people. And the normal way to look at other people is to judge them based on outward appearances and superficial characteristics. The normal way to look at other people is to view their value as contingent on the benefit that they can bring you in your life, to ultimately view them as pawns in your continuous chess game to try and get ahead in life. But if you realize that, that Jesus didn't just pay your debt, but Jesus paid for the debt of everyone, it is impossible to stay normal. It is impossible to continue to look at people that way. Instead, when you look at them, you see their value based on the fact that Jesus loved them enough to die for them too. And you see them as eternal beings who have an eternal future in store for them in one of two places. You're going to get sick of this quotation from C.S. Lewis that I've shown you a few times, but I just like it so much that I have to show it again. C.S. Lewis said this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of immortals, eternal beings, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you ever meet, that's looking at people from the normal point of view, will either one day be a creature, which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship it, or a creature which, if you saw it now, would give you nightmares. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Rather, it is immortals with whom we joke and work and marry and live. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Looking at people like this, it's not normal. It's just weird. Finally, Paul says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. Just like there's a normal way to live and a normal way to interact with other people, there's a normal way to view conversations about religion. And that normal way is to view conversations about religion, sort of the way that we view that really strange fad diet that we're on, the kind of diet where you just eat bacon all day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and, and just watch the pounds melt away. The kind of diet that, that even if you're doing it and even if it's working for you, it's just so strange that you would never tell anyone else what's going on. That's the normal way to view conversations about religion. But if you realize that, that Jesus paid the debt of the entire world and, and that Jesus is our only hope, anyone's only hope for getting out of that debt and avoiding its punishment, it's impossible to stay normal. If there is someone that you know, certainly someone you love, who as of yet is ignoring or refusing the greatest gift of the God who gives, then just like Paul says, you will, you will implore them, you will beg them to receive that wonderful, precious gift. What Paul is doing for us here is really giving us 
a wonderful litmus test to sort of look at our lives and assess them. Are we being weird or are we being normal? Are our lives being fueled by this weird idea called grace or are they being fueled by, by something else entirely? In fact, it occurs to me that as we look at our lives and, and carry out that honest assessment that, that so often we need to do, the greatest criticism we could ever make of ourselves is not to say that we've been selfish, not to say that we've been egotistical or narcissistic, not that we've treated other people cruelly or rudely or acted inconsiderately. No, the greatest criticism we could possibly make of our lives is simply to say that all too often we have been normal. That all too often we have lived for ourselves. That all too often we have looked at people and judged them based on superficial characteristics, viewed them as pawns in our chess game, and all too often we have, we have shied away from giving them the greatest gift that the God who gives can possibly deliver. That all too often we have been just normal. And if that's the case, then it's important for us to go back to that weird idea where all of our weirdness comes from in the first place, to go back to God's grace. In fact, that's another thing that makes us who we are as a church. God's grace is not just something that we can talk about once, make sure we know about it, believe in it, and then sort of check it off of our list and, and move on to bigger and better things about God. No, God's grace is something that we need each and every day. God's grace is the very reason that we gather here in church to sing of God's grace and speak of God's grace and hear of God's grace for 60 minutes straight. And the more we do, the more we, we feast and embrace that weird idea called grace, the more, the more we're going to be weird. The more we won't live for ourselves. The more we will view people as precious souls for whom Jesus died, the more we will want them to have the very same hope, the very same joy, the very same confidence that we have. And as we embrace that weirdness, as we embrace grace and then watch as it turns us into that kind of weird people, I have a feeling that as we come into contact with people, as people see that kind of weirdness in our lives, they're going to embrace it too. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.